you. Well, thank you. Have you been enjoying this series on Luke? Oh, man, this is like, come on. Have we been enjoying the series? Um, I'll tell you, Pastor Rex gives it up every week, doesn't he? Let's give him a round of applause for bringing it week in and week out. Thanks, Pastor. So today you have me. Oh, come on now. No, no, please. Oh, I was hoping you know. Hey, let me ask you a question. Would you agree with this statement that what is free requires nothing for me? I mean, it makes sense. I mean, imagine it's your birthday and somebody's handing you a gift. And as they're handing you the gift, they whisper in your ear, here you go, but I expect you to give me something in return. That would be a little weird. It ought to require nothing from you. It's free. It's a gift. But you know, sometimes in life, what is free requires a lot and can carry with it a significant cost. Some years ago, oh, about 20 years ago, how the time goes by, a friend of mine was given a full football scholarship to play Division I football for a team in Texas. And as you can imagine, his senior year, when he received that news, how excited he was. But probably even more excited than him was his parents. Because, not only because of the opportunity it afforded their son, but because for the next four years, everything related to college was free. Everything. Tuition, free. Books, free. All the tutors that he needed, and he needed a lot, free. Food was free. Room and board was free. Laundry, services, free. All the air and bus travel to and from out-of-town games, free. Literally everything for the next four years was free. But it cost him big time. He would share how brutal practice was in West Texas, August, 105 degrees. He said it was like practicing in a sauna, and they didn't just practice once a day, they practiced twice a day. Off-season conditioning was absolutely brutal. He would share how they would climb the stadium stairs up and down, up and down, up and down in full gear. All kinds of weightlifting and gymnastics and climbing ropes and forget about practice. He tore ligaments. He broke his nose. Oh, it cost him literally his blood, his sweat, his tears, everything that was in him is what it cost him. Oh, it was free, but it carried a significant cost. You know, the best thing in life is free. The free gift of eternal life found in and through the cross of Jesus. The Bible teaches we are saved by grace alone, means it's free. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, it's not based on our works, it's not based on our good deeds, it's not based on our efforts, so that none of us, as Paul says in Ephesians, so that none of us can boast, but rather it's based on what Jesus Christ has done for you and me on the cross. Is it free? Absolutely. But for those of us who have accepted the free gift of eternal life, for those of us who would call ourselves Christians, listen, 
We must never think that what is free requires nothing from me. Oh, no. It requires our complete and total commitment to Christ. And that's what I want to talk about today as we continue in our series in the book of Luke. Today we're going to be looking at a very challenging passage, Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. It's all about the cost of discipleship. Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem where he would be crucified. It's happening towards the end of his earthly ministry. And because of that, it's also occurring at the height of his popularity, giving all the signs and wonders, miracles that he's performed over the course of his life. And so anywhere Jesus would go, the crowds would always follow. And so as we open up this passage, you will notice the crowds are following Jesus. And Jesus stops, and he looks at this large crowd, and he asks this question. In so many words, he is asking this question, are you sure you want to follow me? And he lays out in unforgettable terms what is required to be a disciple, a follower of his. Let's look at this passage together. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, Brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross, this is kind of a self-sacrificing, a dying to yourself, is what he's getting at there, and follow me, they cannot be my disciple. Now those are some heavy words. I mean, you'd think Jesus would want to keep the crowd, but apparently that is not what he's after because these hard words are going to lose some people. You see, Jesus often was skeptical of the large crowds that would follow him because he knew so many of them were following him for their own benefit. Hey, what would he do next? Maybe he'll heal me. Maybe he'll turn bread and fish again into enough food to feed me. And so Jesus just stops and lays it all out and says, if you follow me and do not hate father, mother, brother, sister, spouse, children, your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Now, hate's a pretty strong word, and you've got to be thinking, this is a joke, right? Because you can think of other passages in the Bible that would seem to conflict with this passage, like honor your father and mother, and yet here it seems like he's saying, hate them. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5, that's a sacrificial kind of love, and yet here it seems like he's saying, hate them. In Mark 10, we read of how Jesus would be surrounded by the children, and he would lay his hands on them and bless them, and then he would look at the adults and say, man, you ought to have a faith like a child, have childlike faith. How could he do that and then command parents to hate their children? How could he say, love your enemies? And yet here it appears like he's saying, hate your friends and family? What is going on here? And what we have to understand, friends, is that Jesus 
is using hyperbole. It's an exaggerated statement to make a point. You know, we often use hyperbole. The other day I was talking to my wife. I looked at her. I said, honey, I have told the children to clean their rooms a million times. Have you ever done that? Now, clearly it wasn't a million times. It felt like it. It was maybe a hundred, but you get the point. It's an exaggerated statement to get your point. And so when Jesus is using the word hate, He's not using it the way we would define it, hostility towards someone, aversion towards someone. No, it's an exaggerated statement to make his point. Actually, it's an exaggerated comparison. God on one hand and all other human relationships on the other. It's like when he said, you cannot serve two masters. God on one hand and money on the other. He said, you will hate one and love the other. And he's not calling Christians to hate money. You can do wonderful things to bless others with money, but we're not to love it more than God, and that same principle applies here. When he's saying you're to hate father and mother, brother and sister, and so forth, he's using the word hate to indicate preference. God comes first. It's as if he is saying you're to love me more than them. In fact, Jesus said that same thing this way, in Matthew 10, 37, parallel passage, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, the question is, do we prioritize him? Do we value him above our own lives and above those closest to us? That's what he's getting at here. Now, you may hear that and say, man, this is weird. You mean to tell me I'm supposed to value as a Christian Christ and God more than my children? Yeah, as a genuine follower of his. Now, before you get all weirded out on that, just stop and think of this, of this for a moment. If we could only prioritize Christ in our lives and value him above me, live for Christ, and live in accordance with his ethic of loving God and loving others, oh my goodness, our relationships would be so much better. Our lives would make so much more sense. Hey, we'd make better fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, spouses, children, we'd be better people for it. If we really lived it out, now you know this, Maybe in your own life, through experiences of your own, or maybe through experiences of people you know. It's when we take control of our lives and do what comes natural, living for me, myself, and I, that's when we destroy our relationships. And in the end, we're left with all sorts of regret. Oh, if we could only value him and prioritize him There'd be so much less, so much more or less tension in our relationships. But you know, sometimes valuing him above others can cause tension in those other relationships. I remember some years ago, a friend of mine, Christina, when she became a Christian, she was in her early 20s at the time. Her life just took a complete 180-degree turn, went in the opposite direction of where she was heading. She graduated from a very prestigious university, 
a wonderful degree, just landed an incredible job. Life was going real good for her. And as she matured in her faith, this call on her life surfaced. It was a call to go into the mission field. She was afraid of it, and she ignored it. And she would ignore it any time it came up. But after some time, that calling just got stronger and stronger and stronger. To make a long story short, after several months and after much prayer, she decided, I'm going to the mission field. For a season, I'm going to leave my job and go, go off to the mission field. When her parents found out about that, they were not happy. They were like, you, you just landed a wonderful job. You have a great degree. You're going to flush it all down the toilet to go to the mission field. And Christine told her parents about her call and her faith, but they didn't understand it. They were not Christians. But you know what Christina was doing at that moment? She was saying this to her parents. Mom, Dad, I love you, but I value my God and my call, my faith, more than how you feel. And she went off to the mission field. You see, sometimes valuing Christ above our own lives and above those closest to us causes tension. In our lives, it's a cost to be a disciple. You know, Jesus, in this passage, points out and pushes the point of priority. He comes first by pointing out everything that we humanly value. Our own lives, he comes first. Our closest relationships, he comes first. Our possessions. He comes first. We value him above them. Look at verse 33. We're going to drop down and then come back up. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Whoa. Everything? I guess I can't be a disciple of his. I, I have a house, a car, right? Some money in the bank. And again, Jesus here is using hyperbole. It's an exaggerated statement to make his point. See, the point is not that you have to give it all away. The point is this. It's very subtle. Listen, but it's a huge difference. The point is this. This is what he's saying. We're to value him as Christians so much so that we would be willing to give it all away. We would be willing to do that. See, sometimes I forget who we're talking about. We're talking about God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Listen, look at me at all the campuses. Listen, look at me, look at me. God is not after your money. He does not need our nickels and dimes and dollars. He's God. He's big. You know what he's after? Something much deeper than that. He's after you. He's after me. He's after our hearts. And when our hearts are captured by his grace and his love, that's when generosity will flow out of us. Never mix the two. Never get that order mixed up. It gets really ugly when we do. 
He's after our hearts. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13.3, If I give all I possess to the poor, listen, but do not have love, the love of Christ in my heart, I gain nothing. Wrong motive. He's after our hearts. C.S. Lewis, the great theologian, Oxford scholar, said this, and I quote, The Christian way is different. Christ says, I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your worth. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. I want you, I want your heart, end quote. You see, Jesus is looking at the crowd, and he's saying, if you come after me, and you do not value me above your own life, above your family, your friends, your possessions, if we do not value him above everything we cannot be his disciples. See, the question is, do we value him above everything? Why does, why does Jesus require us to value him above everything? You ever stop and think about that? I mean, why does he? Well, the big reason is because he values you. He values me. He died on the cross for you and for me, he gives us eternal hope. He gives us the free gift. So that's the big why we're, we're called to value him. It makes sense. But Jesus in this passage gives a very practical reason, and it's this. He wants you to finish strong in the faith for your good and for his glory. And if we don't value him, we will not finish well for him. Pick up the passage. We're going to go up now. Verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. They finish well. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Now, this is just so practical in this illustration. He's saying, before you make a big decision, you ought to calculate the cost. And that calculation will inform your decision. Build, no build, go to war, make peace. It's just so practical and intuitive, this illustration. You know, I know a lot of developers that attend Grace Fellowship. And I don't think I've ever seen a half-built structure from them. And the reason is because they're smart business people. Before they decide to go forward on a project and break ground, they're going to calculate the cost. They're going to understand what's required. The permits, the approval, the labor, the construction management, the financing, and all the costs associated with it. They're going to calculate the cost, and that calculation will inform the decision. Yeah, I think we ought to do it. It's going to be a success. Or I don't think we should do this. It's going to be a failure. 
And Jesus goes on similarly, before a nation goes to war, the military leaders, they're going to get together. They're going to assess the situation. They're going to ask some questions. Does the opposing nation have a stronger military presence? Do they have more machinery, more manpower, better technology, more weaponry? And that calculation will inform the decision. We ought to not go to war. They're going to annihilate us. Let's go to make peace. Oh, man, we can take them. Let's do it. Just real practical. Real, real simple. It's not overcomplicated. Real Simple illustration. Before we make a big decision, we ought to calculate the cost. Here's why. Because if we don't, we'll likely start something we can't finish. Now the reason why Jesus is giving this simple illustration that seems so obvious is because when it comes to following him, many people never think of the cost. We never think of the sacrifice, is what he's saying. Not everyone, but many people. The, the sacrifice of valuing him above everything. And what, what we think of is the benefit. That's what the crowds were doing, by the way. So many in the crowds, the ones he's specifically speaking to, they were following him for their own benefit. What would he do next? They wanted to be part of the excitement. Maybe he'll heal me or a family member or a friend. Maybe he'll turn some bread and fish into enough food to feed me like he did before. And I think sometimes we do the same thing. We don't want to think too much about the cost. We like the benefit, his forgiveness, his, his grace, you know. I don't want to go to hell. And we forget about the cost. You know, Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. He's going to die on a cross for our sins. He sacrificed for us, and so it's just natural to think as followers of his, we ought to sacrifice for him as well. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Christian, you are not your own. You were bought at a price, and that price was the blood of Jesus. We're to die to our self-centered ways. You know, Jesus never tried to sugarcoat the message, if you think about it. He never kept the hard part of following him in fine print. Never did it. As we would expect, he was so completely transparent of what was required to follow him. Not only in this passage, but throughout the Gospels. You remember in Mark, in Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus. He asks him the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Mark captures Jesus' words, his response. In verse 21, Jesus looked at him and 
loved him. Now, let me stop for a moment right there. I think sometimes we've got we to remember that all these hard teachings from Jesus are always flowing out of a heart of love for you and for me. They're never meant to harm us. They're always meant to help us. Every command in the Bible is rooted out of a heart of love for you. Jesus had a love for him. And then he said, one thing you lack. He said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. He's testing him. He knows this man's God is money. And he's saying, are you sure you want to follow me? Will you value me more than your possessions? Are you sure you want to be a follower? See, he's testing him. In Luke 9, we read of, again, Jesus with a large crowd. We read of a man who shouts, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Luke 9, 57. And Jesus responds, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's testing him. You sure you want to follow me? Will you value me, he's saying, more than your creature comforts, more than our self-centered ways? You see, he's, he's reminding us there's a sacrifice to following him. Another man in Luke 9 shouts, Lord, verse 61, I will follow you. But first, notice that word, first, priority. Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. He's testing him. Will you value me above your closest relationships. Are you sure you want to follow me? Now hear me. Jesus is not saying you got to give it all away to him, your possessions. And he's not saying you'll never have a nice pillow to rest your head on at night. And he's not saying you can't say bye to your family member before, for example, you go off to a mission trip. Of course not. What he is saying and what he is reminding us of is there is a cost, a sacrifice to following him. And it's this. We're to value him more than us, our own lives, more than our family, more than our friends, more than our possessions, more than everything. He said, I want you to understand there's a cost. I do not want you starting in the faith and then do nothing. I do not want you starting in the faith and thinking it's going to be a cakewalk, and when it's not, you bail. He said, I want you to be a half-built And he gives us the big reason as to why he doesn't want that for any of us as we close this passage out, verse 34. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is, neither, it is fit neither for the soil 
nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Now let me unpack that. Sounds a little strange, but let me unpack it. Now we all understand the purpose of salt. It's real good. It enhances the flavor of bland food. We get it. Salt is good. We'd also understand that if salt were to lose its saltiness, loses its taste, it would be worthless. Like, well, what are you going to do with this stuff? Right? And then Jesus says, even worse, he's alluding to this, even worse, it can ruin, tasteless salt can ruin good things. If you were to mix it in with soil, this compound, you can no longer use the soil to plant vegetation. If you were to mix it in with manure, you can no longer use it for fertilizer. Now, who is the salt and who are the tasteless salt? The salt are committed Christians. The tasteless salt are many in the crowds that were following him, but they were not committed to him. They looked like followers, but they were not genuine followers. Tasteless salt looks like salt, but it's not the real thing. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, 13, Sermon on the Mount. You, Christian, listen, you are the salt of the earth. We're to flavor the world with his grace and his truth. We're to penetrate the world that way, like salt penetrates meat. But if the salt loses its saltiness... No longer committed to him, no longer valuing him, look no different than the world. How can it be made salty? Again, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, let me just boil this all down, make it real simple. Jesus is saying, I'd rather have a small pile of taste, salt that has taste, genuine salt, than a huge pile of tasteless salt, to which all of us would say, absolutely, makes sense. Totally. I get it. What are you going to do with this huge pile? He's saying, I'd rather have 50 committed Christians than 50,000 uncommitted. He's saying, I don't want you to come to me and not be committed to me. Why? Because then we would have his name Christian without his power which only comes when we value him, when we're committed to him, and when we're connected to him. And if we do not have his power, we will not represent him well. There will be no affection and love for him, and therefore no sacrifice, and therefore no fruit. Jesus said it this way in John 15, 5. One of my favorite passages, he said, I am the vine, you, Christian, are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Who produces the fruit, the vine or the branch? The vine, he does. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We're half-built. See, when we value him, we're committed. When we're committed, we're connected to the power source and the Holy Spirit produces the fruit for our good, for his glory. 
But if we do not value him, we're not committed, we're not committed, we're not connected. If we're not connected, hear me, we do not live out our purpose for him. And we'll likely represent him poorly. And just like tasteless salt can ruin good things, can ruin manure when you mix it and you can't use it for fertilizer. Uncommitted Christians can ruin testimonies for him. In Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus not only refers to the committed Christians as the salt of the world, he says you are the light of the world. He said, let your light shine before others, and that's the Holy Spirit shining in and through our lives that they may see your good deeds. Who's they? The world, the lost and hurting world that is in desperate need to know the grace and the love of God in Christ Jesus. That they may see your good deeds. And what are the good deeds? Love, joy. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all under the umbrella of unity in the body of Christians and in the church. I mean, could you imagine if we could do this well as we yield our lives to him? I mean, the world would look at us and say, man, there is something so different about you. And we just point him to the cross. So that, let's finish the passage. So that they may see your good deeds and, can we do this together? Can, can we just say these words together, underlined on the screen at all our campuses? So that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. One more time. Glorify your Father in heaven, one more time. That is the why behind his hard teaching. We do not value him. We will not glorify him for your good, for his glory. There will be no fruit. There will be no fruit. And that's reason why Jesus has some hard teachings. This is one of them, and I know it's a challenging passage. It's the cost of being a disciple. In John 6, and I want to close with this, it's Jesus again. He's surrounded by the large crowds again. I don't have time to get into the teaching, but at its core, Jesus is teaching a hard lesson around being committed and valuing him above everything. In fact, they, they, were, they were after bread, food. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He gives a hard teaching. And in John 6, 60, after this hard teaching, it says this, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then we drop down, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back 
and no longer follow him. Verse 67, this is a very, very heavy verse. Because it is the creator God, God in a body, Jesus Christ, asking this question. Now understand the context. Large crowd dwindled down to just the 12 disciples because of the hard teaching. And Jesus asks the question, you don't want to leave too, do you? That, that, that's a picture of the depths of God's love. He never forces himself on any of us. He gives us the freedom to choose. He asks the disciples, you going to leave too? And Peter, of course, always the first to respond, answers in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, Peter's like, yeah, there is a cost to following you. But the cost of not following you, the cost of not being a disciple is so much bigger, namely, no eternal hope, no eternal peace, no eternal life. Peter's like, I'm all in, I'm all in, I'm all in. Question. Was Peter perfect? No. None of the disciples were perfect, okay? And we know when the pressure was on, Jesus is arrested, he's persecuted. Someone sees Peter, said, hey, Peter, you're, you're one of Jesus' followers. And Peter said, I don't even know who Jesus is. He didn't just deny him once. He didn't just deny him twice. He denied him three times, and he put his will above God's will. And we'll read in, in Luke 22, later in the series, that Peter wept, and he felt the weight of his sin, and he repented, and he turned back. And Jesus restored him as the leader of the first century church, and I wanted to go here because I think when you read a passage like the one we read and when you hear a sermon like this, you can begin to think, am I even in the faith? You, 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 can, you can begin to think, is this a call to perfection? And it's not a call to perfection because none of us are perfect, right? We all fall short of the glory of of God, And there's going to come times where committed, genuine Christians mess up and sin, and we put our will ahead of his will. When that happens, we do what Peter did. We weep over it, and we confess it, and we, we, we return to Christ. His grace is sufficient. His mercies, the Bible teaches us, are new every morning. His grace is so sufficient. You know, it's, it's a hard teaching. What would we do without his grace? Acts 3, verse 19, repent then 
and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Love that. Second Chronicles 39b, for the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. I like how one theologian put it, when we sin as committed Christians, he said this, that sin does not invalidate the direction of your heart. And if your heart is all about valuing God and understanding what he's done for you and just falling madly in love with him and prioritizing him in your life, if the direction of your heart is all about him, that's what it's about. See, the question is, what is the direction of our heart? Because when we turn back to him, his grace is so sufficient. But we must never think, friends, for those of us that have accepted the free gift of eternal life found in and through the cross of Jesus, we must never think that what is free requires nothing from me. No. It requires everything. Our total and complete commitment to him. We value him, committed to him. We stay connected to him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll finish strong for him. For your good and for his glory. I want to end with this quote from author theologian, pastor John Piper, he said of this passage, whatever you do, don't domesticate the radical teaching of Jesus. They make you uncomfortable, let them do their work. They are designed to create real disciples who are ready to lose all to gain Christ. The world may call it foolishness. It is not. It is love. And it is the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. And Father, I pray for all that hear my voice. You know where each one is individually on their journey to you. And I would just pray, Father God, that we would feel the weight of your grace and your love and your sacrifice. And my prayer for each one of us is that the weight of it changes us and draws us closer to you so that we not only have a brand new life filled with eternal hope and meaning and purpose, but we also have the power that transforms us from the inside out and that we may represent you well in a world that is so desperate for your goodness and your grace and your love. May we be that light. 
for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Pat.